what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? What is life all about? You know, why am I here? What is the purpose of it? What is the meaning of life? I asked Alan Bush to do um, an interview, to do some interviews, and I want to see the results of those. But before we do, first I want to say um, Tamer, Tamer um, is one of the ones that he actually met interviewing him on, um, on this question. Um, but we don't have yours, Tamer. We have others. Um, we want to just see the results of just what some people said. What is the purpose of life? What is this meaning? Um, why am I here? So let's watch this clip for just a couple minutes. To ask that question and have those conversations and see God's grace to move in a person's heart and bring them to, 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 themse- to himself. That's awesome. Keep praying for her. I think Joan's connecting with her. Um, maybe already did over the weekend. Just pray that she would be discipled and truly grow in the Lord. Mark Twain, American writer Mark Twain, wrote this. That the two most important days in your life are the day that you are born and the day that you find out why. I would like to say that the three most important days in one's life are the day you are born physically, the day you are born spiritually, and the day that you find out that the why is that living is Christ. And I want us to look at that. We hear what the world says, this is what life means to me, or this is my happiness, or doing this or that. But I think Paul, from the passage that we looked at, he would say, give this maybe big idea, that living means Christ. This is truly what living is, that living for me means Christ. And we get that from the words for to me to live is Christ. But to define that, and that's the phrase we want to um, trace through here, that living means Christ as we look at these, these words in verses 19 to 26. If you look at the end of verse 18, and Pastor Lawrence covered 12 to 18 last week, and the end of verse 18 in that previous section, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. So he starts this whole section coming off of these incredible words, yes, I will rejoice. He's declaring that he's going to rejoice. And he explains now in verses 19 and 20. Um, He's giving his explanation. This is why I am confident. This is why I'm confident in that what God's going to do in my life, I'm going to be joyful. It's going to work out okay. This is where I I title this section, verses 19 to 21, eager expectation to just honor Christ. Because Paul has this one drive. He wants to honor Christ in his life. He wants to exalt Christ in his life. And he's convinced that no matter what happens because of God's sovereignty, of God's absolute control, that it's going to be great. He's going to be joyful. He's going to be happy. And he's coming off of the heels, remember? The false motives of these preachers preaching the gospel in Rome, trying to hurt Paul. And he's also coming off of this, his whole imprisonment. But here I am in prison, but I know that God's going to work out things because I'm confident. I'm going to be joyful because I have this one passion. You see, you could only have this joyful outlook. You could only be confident that what's happening in your life is going to turn out for joy if living means Christ. If I'm living my life and the meaning of my life is, is to know Christ, to honor him, then we'll be able to be joyful in every circumstance. So we get into our passage in verse 19. Paul writes, for I know, but in the Greek, and really, it's an emphasis. The first words in the Greek really are, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance. He's putting deliverance in the stress. He's putting deliverance up first. For I know this will turn out to my deliverance. 
He's looking at deliverance and he's focusing on what's going to happen. I know I'm going to be delivered. Now, this, this demonstrative pronoun, is really kicking back to the context. It's just highlighting what he's just talked about in verses 12 to 18. And this is my focus. I realize that as I am in prison and there are these false preachers, but I know this circumstance, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. His only insurance, his, his assurance that it's going to turn out great is because of his perspective. If you throw the perspective out the window, that living means Christ. He doesn't have that expectation. He doesn't have that confidence that he's going to be delivered. By the way, deliverance. I think there are a couple options that we're looking at here. Some might say, well, it means to be delivered from from prison. I'm not so sure that's it because at one point, he's not sure whether he's going to live or die. And yet a little bit later, he then says, I'm pretty confident that God wants me around to be fruitful label for you guys. So he's not convinced that he's going to be delivered. Um, I think he might have a deeper purpose that he's looking at. His whole perspective of this deliverance could also mean to be vindicated. As he stood on trial in Rome. And he's saying, I am confident that I will be delivered as I am on trial. And how I handle myself as I give defense of the gospel, I give defense of why I'm here, of my character, that I will be vindicated. And I think there's also a connection with that final vindication before God in the end. But I lean more towards this vindication as he's going to stand before the emperor. He's going to stand before the Roman government. This phrase, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. If you were to borrow... Um, pastor's Greek Septuagint and open it up and go to Job 13 verse 16. This, the um, Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it was translated, it's called a Septuagint by the 70 into Greek. You look at the words in Job 13, 16 and look at the words in Philippians 1, 19. It's going to be the same words. I think it's a quote that Paul is reaching back into Job 13 and he's referencing Job. When Job makes this statement, this will be my salvation. This will be my deliverance. And the setting is Job's being attacked by his pious, godly counselors as they're shooting their arrows at him. And Job makes this statement that I know that, that God in the end will deliver me. God in the end will declare me to be innocent. God knows the truth. So he's connecting into that phrase that, that God is the final vindication so here Paul is, he's being attacked by these false pre- these preachers for false motives as he's in prison. He's confident that when he goes to trial, God will vindicate him and the gospel and that Christ will be exalted. You could only have that confidence if what is true. If living means what? Means self. If living means Money, if living means position, if living means anything. No, not temporal, no. He's confident that living means Christ. Paul is passionate in his pursuit of Christ. And so he's confident that no matter what happens in his life, that it's going to turn out okay. And he's rejoicing over that. Look at his eager expectation, verse, verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage or boldness, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He has this, this eager expectation. He has this eager yearning or this, this longing. 
And it's that word that has to be intense longing for something. You're yearning for something. It's really the idea of, of stretching your neck out so far because you're trying to see something. This Greek word, eager expectation, is used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's in Romans 8, 19. And in there it says the whole creation groans, yearns for the sons of God. So this creation's yearning for something forward. It's eagerly expecting, eagerly looking forward to something. So Paul writes here and he says, I have an eager expectation. It's, it's the picture of my head's being erected. I'm firmly looking for something down the road to come. I'm yearning for something in my life. This was used in the the Greek classics when it was describing um, the watchman who was peering into the darkness. His eyes were riveted. He was looking down over the horizon across the mountains because he was looking for the gleam of light to come as they would have their signals that would be passed on down. And that's how word was spread that the city of Troy was captured. And so he's looking, he's looking for that flicker in the distance to catch that message and so that he could then light his wood and send the message on down. It's that idea, eager expectation, straining forward. Well, what is Paul straining forward for? What, what is Paul yearning for? It's that intense, passionate yearning, that expectation, that drive in his heart that, and he writes the words, that I will not be ashamed because he wants to honor Christ. What does living mean for you? What does it mean for me? For Paul, he's saying living means Christ and I have this one passionate desire. I want to honor Christ. I don't want to be ashamed. Paul says I don't want to bring disgrace. Put yourself in the shoes of Paul. The whole world, that culture is against you. There are a few Christians in Rome that are supporting him. But as he stands before this intimidating council, the Roman government, Paul says, as I stand there, I don't want to be frail in my human frailty. I want to be bold in my witness. It's not that he would be a coward, but he wants to be able to say the words that God would give him to say to be a bold defendant of truth, to clearly present the gospel, to be a witness in his passion for Christ as he yearns and as he desires to be. So he says, I have this human, I have this, this, this um, passion, this eager expectation that I would be a witness as I should be. Why? Because living means what for Paul? Living means Christ. Christ means everything to him. And as I stand, I want to be able to give forth testimony and words of, of, of um, exaltation to the Lord. And then he says, in the hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Think of that word, that phraseology, to be ashamed. We've heard, and we've heard reference in messages, this is an honor and shame culture. Well, what does that mean, an honor and shame culture? Paul is saying here, Paul the prisoner, Paul this chain, Paul this has limited freedom. Paul that's going to come before the Roman council. He says, I don't want to be ashamed. The Roman government, the Roman, his Roman peers already say, you already are ashamed. You're already a disgrace. You're, you're a prisoner. You've lost your freedom. You're shackled. That's embarrassing in a shame on our society. 
to have your limitations, to be publicly humiliated, to be a prisoner, to be incarcerated, to have your limitations, that's a great dishonor in the court of public, um, um, public reputation. But Paul's not concerned about that. Really, he's flipping it. He says, I don't want to be ashamed, but who's he concerned about bringing shame to? To himself? He's concerned about bringing shame to Christ because living means Christ. So he says, I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to bring any shame to Christ. He's not concerned about his shameful position. He's not concerned about how he looks. He's just flipping the whole honor-shame um, thought here. He says, I just want to be able to honor Christ. I want to be able to exalt Christ in his trial, impending humi continued humiliation, and what people were saying, be it Roman um, um, believers and how they were getting, trying to slander Paul. He, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter to him. Paul wants to be able to speak with boldness for Christ. And this word that we have here translated in the ESV, courage. He says, but I want to have boldness as always. He expresses this desire. I want to be bold for Christ. Make a note and chase down the word, um, the, the reference Acts 4.13. But in there, it's a beautiful passage. Peter, the apostles, and they're speaking boldly. And they're taken into examination. And they're trying to figure out, how are these uneducated men able to be so bold? What's the answer? They're able to be bold. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. So boldness. Well, Peter, I mean, Paul here, he wants to be bold. Paul says, yeah, I have a different value system and what matters to me. I have a different th system that I, that I yearn for. Paul is not ashamed of his imprisonment. Paul doesn't want to bring shame to Christ. You know, when we think of shame, and it's a little bit connected with the morning message and who we're glorying in, approval of men or, or, or approval of God. You know, what are we ashamed of? Paul here is saying that shame for him would be letting Christ down. Shame for Paul would not be a witness for Jesus Christ. Shame for Paul was not to hold firm to the faith. Shame for Paul would be to compromise his beliefs and not to speak forth boldly. And yet, shame for us sometimes is, man, I have to say a word about Christ or I have to take a stand or I'm going to speak up against what they're doing here. Paul is concerned that I want to in everything, I want to be able to be an be, bring glory to God, bring glory to Jesus Christ. I want to be able to honor him. See this word honor? That Christ will be honored in my body. Um, honor. Um, it's to make great, to enlarge, to bring praise to. He wants to make God great. He doesn't want to be seen as great. He wants to be small. But my desire is that God will be made great. I want to be able to honor him by how? By Honor him in my body. See, God's not necessarily honored or glorified in great monuments. Um, God's not necessarily honored in great things that we might build or these great um, um, movements per se. He's honored in our lives, in our bodies. Paul says, in my body, right here in my existence, I want to be able to boldly exhort exalt the Lord. I want to be able to boldly point to Jesus Christ. 
That's his passion as he's sitting in prison, as he's chained to these Roman guards as we saw earlier in chapter 1. And he has this one desire, not to vindicate himself so he could go be free. He says, I just want to be able to honor God. I want to be able to exalt him. How do we stand in comparison? We're going to have the last 10, 15 minutes will be more application. But let me just throw this out. How do we stand in comparison, may I say, to Paul? When we look at the the life of Paul and his heartbeat of wanting to honor God, wanting to make him big, not being ashamed in anything in his life that what he could do, he wants to be a witness. How are we comparing? Are we ashamed for Christ? Are we ashamed to to speak for Christ? Um, When people are talking about Christianity or mocking, are, are we bold to be a witness for him? When there's an open door, do we jump through that and take opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ? You know, at school, um, at work, the neighborhood at the store, do we take opportunities? How about when I think of young people, there are a few here tonight, um, you know, when, we're in, when you're in school and an opportunity comes that maybe some of your peers are doing something wrong, um, Maybe they're even mocking the name of Christ more than maybe the public school system. Um, Do we take a stand? Are we anxious to take a stand? Maybe you're playing in the neighborhood and kids are doing something wrong. Are you willing to take a stand and say, no, I'm I'm not going to do that because my mom and dad taught me differently or I have a different value system. Pastor this morning talked about cheating. Um, I think that's a problem in our school system. You know, just with kids, period. I'm not saying necessarily in our Christian school, but... um, Cheating is just kind of accepted. It's okay if, you know, I cheat or I talk to somebody that already took the test that I could take the answers. Well, no, it's not. Because we're, we want to live on a different value system. I want to live to bring glory to God. I want to live to magnify Him. I want to live to exalt Him. I'm not going to do what other people do. Or we look at our, in, our, in our marriages. Am I honoring God in my marriage? Am I honoring God by the way that I treat my spouse? Are we, are we, do we have homes? Do we have marriages that exemplify Christ? By the husband and wives. And to be able to honor Christ, what has to happen? We have to be selfless. And that's Paul here. Paul says, I just want to honor him. I want to exalt him. I want to pursue him. Whether by life or death. Paul says, it's okay. If I die, it's all right. All that matters is that God is made big. Look at the next verse. It's a familiar verse. Two weeks ago when Pastor Savali um, asked for famous, uh, well-known verses, surprisingly, no one nailed Philippians 121. Um, this is one of the, the great verses in this, whole, in this whole book. For to me to live is Christ. How would you answer that? For you to live. If you were thinking through... Um, we would probably immediately say, well, of course, Christ. But now let's take a step back and assess how we spent our time today or how we spent our time this past week. Or what do we think about the most? What do we desire the most? What do we read the most? What do we watch the most? Where do we spend most of our money? How do we then answer that question? For to me, to live is, is it sports? Is it the football game tonight? Is it abilities? Is it um, money? Is it, are we thinking about retirement? Are we thinking about um, vacations? I'm going to save up. You know, we're just consumed with this great vacation you're planning. What, what, what defines us? You see what Paul says? For to me to live is Christ. 
He's coming out of all that he just said. I'm going to rejoice. It's going to work out great. I'm confident because I have these things in place. I have this eager expectation. I want to honor him. This eager expectation. I want to bring him glory. This eager expectation that I will not be ashamed. Bring shame to Christ. So having raised the possibility for me to live as Christ, he's raising the possibility, a capital charge. He's really going back and forth in this passage, alternating between life and death. And he's talking because he really is not convinced of what's going to happen. They'll seem to get to that point in verse 25. But verses 21 to 24 are flowing back and forth between alternating life and death statements. And it's really an intensely personal section. There are several singular verbs and pronouns that Paul is speaking. He's drawing attention to himself and he's sharing his heart. For me to live is Christ. Everything changed on the Damascus road for Paul. Paul was on this road. He had letters in his back pocket. He was dragging Christians off. He was on the road to Damascus. He was about to execute and chain them. But he met Christ and Christ changed everything. And we'll see when we get to chapter 3 verse 10. That Paul has this one desire. I want to intimately know Christ. I want to be able to know him. So Paul's desire to know Christ and to serve Christ. And that's what the whole book is about. He had this one purpose. For to me to live is truly Christ. He wants to honor. He wants to glorify Christ in everything that he does. Paul fully understood that power, that possessions, social standing, good health, um, assets, all of that stuff is what? It is temporal. We don't really own anything. We can't walk around our home tonight, grab something and say, I really own this. Because if your life is up tonight, you're taking it with you. But there is one thing that Paul owns, and that's Christ. And Christ owns him. And he wants to live in such a way that truly honors God. So as we think of our first point, and we want to just stress that, our eager expectation to honor Christ. We come to verses 21 and 23. Paul has another eager expectation to be with Christ. He just yearns to be with Christ. Is Paul's expectation different than what people in the world experience? I want to show you a 20-second clip of King, Kim Jong II, people mourning when he died as a North Korean leader. I wonder if they had to cry, lest they would um, be in trouble. That guy was a wicked dictator and things that he did. But we've been to funerals where, where people cry, uh, where people let out a lot of emotion, where people are grieving. I remember my grandmom's um, my grandpa's funeral in 1977 and my grandmom coming up to the front, front of the church and we were sitting in that United Methodist Church in Mount Ephraim. She got up front and there's my grandfather in the open casket and she just cried and she said, Frank, get up! Get up, Frank! Get up! I mean, just crying because she couldn't come to grips that he was gone. But Paul has a whole different outlook here. For me to live is Christ. And he says to die is gain. He's looking at, at life. And earth is a blast. But you know what? If he dies, is a gain. How can we get to that point? How can we get to the point that we're able to say when we're about to breathe our last breath, for us to die is gain. You can only get to that point if what is true. 
if living means what? What? It means Christ. If it means anything else, there's no way that dying will be a gain. Only when living means Christ will we be able to get to the point and say that death will be a gain. This word gain means advantage. You know, for Paul, he so walked with Christ. Every day was precious. He was renewed by the Spirit of God every day. He was enlivened by the Spirit of God every day. He was sanctified by the Spirit of God every day. It was a sweet journey. But he realized to take the next step would be an awesome fulfillment of everything that he's experienced beyond what he could even imagine because now he would be alive and sanctified and sweet fellowship with the Lord face to face. Every day that he gets to know Christ is sweet, but there would be no restrictions in eternity because he's with the Lord face to face. So he's able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die, to know Christ is gain. It should be different at a Christian's funeral. It should be a point of, of celebrating when one goes home because they knew the Lord. Back in 2010, I got a phone call from my, my nephew Joshua as he was crying, trying to get the, the information out that his dad, my brother, had suffered a massive heart attack and he was in a coma. And um, three days later, he passed away. He was only, Rich was only 53 in 2010. So we made our way out. I can remember being up in that room up there. We came, camped out with Katie and um, spent a lot of time in the room up there as I was sorting through my, my emotions of losing my brother. My dad came out with us. Lynn and I and Josie made that trek. We went to the funeral at that Mount Laurel Church in, in South Jersey, and um, they had the casket in a side room in their big foyer to the side. And most of the people were in the church. In fact, we were the only ones. And we went up to the, to the foyer, and I'm holding my well, dad was, what, 89 at that point, or, and, and just holding him, and we're there. My dad doesn't show a lot of emotions, but he was crying then. And he says, Dave, do you think... Rich has seen mom. I paused a moment and um, put my arms around my dad and I said, Dad, process everything that has just happened. Rich has just stepped into the presence of heaven. May I say he's walked through those golden gates and before him is this sea of glass, of gold, transparent like glass. And there's a bright light in front of him. But on each side of this path, this road, there's untold number of people. But he only sees the back of these people because they're all bowing forward towards that bright light. And he hears sounds that he's never heard before. He hears this majestic music of the heavens shouting, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the lamb. And he starts to focus on what's in front of him. And dad, I think his heart must have been beating wild at this point. Because he realizes there he is. The lamb of God. That, and reach, immediately drops to his knees in worship. Because he's in the presence of the incarnate God, the son. On the throne that died on the cross for him. I said, dad... It may be a few thousand years before Rich is able to check out who else is there. 
But Paul, when he writes these words and he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. The old hymn that many of us know, face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Face to face I shall behold him far beyond the starry sky. Face to face in all his glory I shall see him by and by. Paul says to die is gain because why? Living means Christ for Paul. It's going to be a gain because I'm going to get to see him. You see, Paul's not between a rock and a hard place. No, Paul's between two strong desires. His one desire, I'm going to check out. By the way, this is not suicidal, right? We all get that. This is a sweet fellowship that he yearns to be in the presence of a loved one. He wants to be with Christ face to face. It's a game. But he has this, this, this passion, this understanding that there's value for him to be here and to stay here, which we'll get to, to in a moment. Look at verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. This word depart is a really picturesque word. It's a word that's used when Roman soldiers would break camp and they would pick up all their belongings and move forward. It's also used of a, of a, a ship when it would hoist his, pick up his anchor and set sail and move on. So Paul says, I'm ready to depart. The word depart and to be, they're two um, infinitives and they're linked by a singular word, a, a, a Greek connection. So it's really showing its intimacy. Depart and to be are connected. So he's saying, my departing means I will be with Christ. He sees the intimate connection there. He's not just going to slip away in a no man's land. My leaving means I'm immediately with Christ. And as he starts, his heart beats wild at that thought. It seems like this could be strange territory for us. May I speak for myself, for me. I mean, I love life, but may I love Christ more. That does such a yearning to be with Christ, to depart and to be with him. This is where Paul lives, as this, this prospect may reality be, I, I, I may be out of here. He's given this, this confidence, though, that he wants to be with Christ. And he uses words, better by far. Um, and it really could be translated in the Greek, much more better, which is kind of awkward. Um, much more better to be with Christ. It's better by far. It's not even a comparison. Kind of like, Ray, can, can I pick on you? You know, it's awesome to see you. And I love my trips with you. But boy, I'm, all, I'm glad to leave you and go home to my wife when we go to Panama. <laughs> Paul is saying, it's, <laughs> I know you feel the same way. <laughs> better by far. I mean, this is Paul, he's saying, you know, just to go be with, with Christ, this is so much better. He yearns for that. In Christ, in Christ alone. And he's at that point because for to me to live is Christ. Living means Christ. Last, I want to look at verses 22 and 24 to 26 quickly here. Um, he has an eager expectation, and that's to serve or to boast of Christ. He says, I, I have this one desire. I want to serve Christ. If Christ leads me here on earth, I want to serve him. I, I want to be about investing my life in other people. You know what the sad Sad truth is, sad reality for, 
I want to say many Christians, I, was, uh, I really maybe should say most, but many Christians is that life is lived apart from God's design. It, it, we may, should I say, we're too often consumers. We're too often selfish. It's too often it's about me. Where Paul is saying, for me to stay, I know there's going to be an advantage, that it's, it's going to be a help to you. In fact, he says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. So he's wrestling in 20 to 24, but now he comes out and he says, you know, I'm kind of convinced that I'm going to remain. That because God will have this be fruitful labor. If I stay, it'll be fruitful labor in your midst. So, so Paul isn't about being selfish. Paul isn't about himself. Paul wants to invest in people. Paul wants to be a preacher of the gospel. If he stays, he'll preach and declare the word and he'll go forth more off of his lips. If he stays, he's going to be hunkered down in meetings at, in villages and towns, sharing the gospel, seeing many come to know Christ, meeting with elders of churches, establishing churches, establishing believers. Maybe he had his own like D group. They kind of travel with him. Um, just doing life with him, investing in people so, that the God, so they become powerful preachers of the gospel. Paul would be involved in people. The saying, loving God supremely and others sacrificially, does that sound kind of familiar? That's Paul's life. He loved God supremely and he loved others sacrificially. And he wants to be involved in fruitful labor. Look at the word in verse 25. He says, I know that if God keeps me around, it will be for your progress. Um, progress and joy in the faith. This word progress is the same word translated um, advance in um, verse 12. The gospel was advanced to the praetorium guard. The gospel cut forward by Paul's message in verse 12 to the guards, to the Caesar's household. It's the same word that's used here, that if I stay, the word of God's going to advance. It's going to be a furtherance. It's going to be growing in the faith. You're going to not stay the same. So if God keeps me around a little bit longer, I'm going to be used to help believers grow in the faith of Jesus Christ. See, he's consumed with Christ and with other people that I want to invest. I want to be built. I want to see others to grow in him. Well, really out of time because I want to hit our closing applications. But verse 26 Paul's boasting in Christ. He says, I'm going to come to you and, and allow you to be able to boast in what God has done in my life. Again, he's flipping everything in the honor-shame um, culture. Boasting in a prisoner that's set free, but you were a prisoner. Boasting in someone that was incarcerated. Bo boasting in, in, in a crucified Christ. Everything is turned upside down, but it is because... Christ did the upside down by coming to this earth and becoming incarnate and dying for us, the God-man. Awesome passage, but I want to look at some applications here. And I, in a moment, have two guys that will be, be fielding mics. Uh, what are some applications from this passage? And I really want to ask you what the applications are. Um, first, we're going to go to a proper perspective on unfavorable circumstances. If I could have my, my two men here with mics. As we look at these this passage that we have just talked through, and we see a proper perspective on unfavorable circumstances. Paul was in some unfavorable circumstances. What are an application that you can apply in your life? As the guys come up down the aisle, if you would just raise your hand. 
when we're faced with circumstances that aren't what we would choose, out of this passage, what's an application that we can make? Anyone? What do you think? All right, James. So having the right perspective really means everything for, for Paul. Uh, the passage that says to live is Christ and to, to die is gain is really talking about his conviction because he knows either way uh, God is going to deliver him either through, um, you know, either from imprisonment and, th- and from the, the things that he feared the most or he's going to deliver him through because when he dies, he's going to be in the presence of the Lord immediately. So he's pretty much torn. Um, if you have the right perspective in life and you know that you belong to the Lord, um, then that's pretty much going to set you up to be successful in everything that you do because you're not going to have that fear of death. You're not going to have that fear of men because you have your eyes fixed on God. All right, good. You know, he, we look at this passage and some of the words, yes, and I will rejoice, eager expectation that Christ will be honored, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, glory boast. It shows that, that Paul has what? He has an understanding that God is sovereign, that God's in absolute control. So how does God's sovereignty, his absolute control, how does that help us in circumstances? How does that help you if you face something, um, a terminal illness that just came before you were hoping it would come, or a death of a loved one that you just were, were not expecting. How does it help us in that? Go ahead, Barbara, right here. You want to get Mike first, and then we'll get Barbara. I just, I'm brought back to one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's you know, in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good, not necessarily what we consider good, but what God has worked out for good for, for, you know, for us, you know, according to his purpose, you know, and and if we truly believe that God is who he says he is, yeah. always good, always loving, always just, then it is good. And even though if I can't understand that, I have yeah. to have faith in God that it is good. Yeah. Amen. Barb. Having a proper perspective in, unfor- unfor- in bad circumstances will help you continue your purpose joyous- joyfully Continue focusing on God and knowing that it's going to pass. This too shall pass. I have to do this. It's not f- uh, good for me right now. I'll still do it to honor Christ because it is in his purpose, because his plan uh, is perfect, and this is in his plan. So it will help me continue without complaint, yeah. without um, sadness, without yeah. getting bitter. Yeah. Good words, Barbara. Um, let me pause just, just one moment. I, I know my, my um, friend is watching. Um, Gary and Julie Yule in Michigan, we've been praying for them on Wednesdays um, and just talking to him yesterday. And, you know, it's easy for me and it's easy for us to come up with these beliefs. It's different when we may not be different when we're in the battle in the trenches and life and is totally, you know, so Gary, as, as you know, has, has, has cancer and not able to tr- go any further in some of the treatment, though he has stem cells that are on hold because of nerve damage and problems in his knee, legs and can't stand any longer. And they're trying to deal with all of that. And so, 
You know, that's the real trenches and the reality and the difficulties that come. But God, may I walk with you today so when that comes, God, I, I, I don't, I don't get it, but I don't need to right now to know that you have a purpose that you're working in our lives. So we have these unfavorable circumstances, but keep walking with Christ so when we face them, it just becomes the next step of a journey with him. I want to look at another um, question, if I could bring it forward. Proper perspective on living. Um, How does this whole passage give us a proper perspective on living. I know it's kind of, kind of connected, but there's a little bit of a different angle that I, that I want us to look at. Um, Paul had a singular passion, and his singular passion was living means Christ. He just wants to know Christ. He wants to live for him. Yet I know in, in my life, in our life, sometimes we might say that, that living is sports, Living is family, living is, like I already mentioned, um, whether it's saving money or vacation or plans or this or that. But for Paul, he says, living means Christ. So what would it look like? This is what I like to have your response. What would it look for, like for a life that is consumed with Christ? What would their everyday look like? A life that wants to know Christ, for me to live as Christ. What does it look like in the 21st century? How would... How would it be fleshed out in our lives? Okay, let's, let's, well, because we're limited on time, we're going to try to keep in 20 seconds. Go ahead, James. So going back to Paul, you have him being chained between two centurion or Roman soldiers. And, and for these soldiers, this, this is the only opportunity they have to, to hear the gospel and Paul completely understand, I'm in this situation and this is the purpose so that I can have these guys' ears open to me for so many hours of their shift so that I can preach the gospel to them. And so many times we find ourselves in situations like, oh, my car broke down, I have to wait for a tow truck. If that was Paul, he would say, okay, then God is bringing somebody over for me to be able to talk to him about the gospel. So having that perspective, you're always on missions for God. Whatever the circumstances, is an opportunity to preach the gospel. And that's the same way Paul saw it, and that's the same way we should see it as well so on our day-to-day life. So going off of that, for me to live as Christ, so we're involved in our neighbor's lives. We're involved that at work. We're building relationships with unsaved people that we may work with and looking, seeking to bring in the gospel. Good. What are other ways? What does it look like in an everyday life for one that's desiring to, to live Christ? Let's go to Tim, then we'll go to Sue. Thank you. Um, so, as an example, following the word and Jesus' own word, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Heard a message from a, a missionary at a missions conference in my home church. And he, came, he was ministering in a country that had a lot of idolatry. But he came home to America and said, we have a lot of idolatry too. Mm-hmm. He said, let me, let me ask you this. If there's anything keeping you out of church on Sunday, that's your idol. Mm-hmm. He said, show me your checkbook and I'll show you your idols. If you're either seeking first the kingdom of God or there's something in the way of that. And he, he had a long list. I won't do it for time. Okay. Um, but it was, you know, time, talent, and treasure. Where's it going? Is it going to Jesus or is it going some, to something else? We drove by a football stadium, and if the country's seeking first the kingdom of God, our churches would look like football stadiums. They'd be as full as football stadiums. I love football, so I'm not knocking anybody going to a football game. But it's the other way around. The, the churches are not full. 
because we're not as a country. We're not seeking Jesus first. So that's, you know, the, the perspective we've lost because I think when I was a kid, I could say that most of the people I knew, at least where I grew up, most people went to church. And now that's co- almost completely the opposite. Thank you, Tim. Sue. 20 seconds or less. <laughs> and all I say and do is to honor him and bring him glory. Yeah. You know, Tim, as you were talking, I'm thinking what it would look like if we were like football fanatics. They turned, showed up at the Eagles Stadium yesterday at 8 o'clock in the morning. Can you imagine pastor walking over here at 7.30 and people are tailgating because they're anxious to get to church? And, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, for me to live as Christ... Uh, you know, we go through the spiritual disciplines. I'm going to be hungry for the Word of God every day. I'm going to get into the Word. I'm going to seek to apply it to my life. I'm going to seek to, to, to live it out throughout the day. I'm going to text people. I'm going to be involved in their lives. I'm going to call people. I really even think it's our, our D groups as we're involved in D groups. We're involved in our small groups. That it's not our own little bubble. But I'm investing my life in other people to help them to grow and to help them to become what God wants them to become. Let me just hit our last question, and there's, there's so much more than we could go on. What's a proper perspective on death? Um, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. How does Paul's perspective on death challenge us? Alan, over here. Thank you. Uh, do we really believe that there's a heaven and a hell? that as soon as we depart from these bodies, we're going one of two places. Because if we do, those of us that are saved uh, will look forward to that. We'll look forward to it more than we look forward to coming home to our kids and our wife and everything else. And if we believe that there's a hell, it'll also determine how we live uh, in the presence of others because we'll be warning them. We'll love them enough to warn them that there's a very real place called hell that they don't have to go to. So our perspective on life and death completely changes if we believe that. Thank you for your responses. We'll, we'll stop at that point. You know, we live in a society that wants to cheat death. You know, they don't want to look old. That's why all these cosmetic stuff going on, these surgeries, and, and I'm going to get rid of my wrinkles or do this or that or have this surgery so I could look younger or do this to... Yeah. <laughs> um, we want to... It's almost like... In, well, let me actually read a, 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 what one author wrote. For many, death is simply presented as the last great opportunity to exert an autonomous consumer choice rather than an occasion on which Christ might be magnified in our bodies. You know, I... I want God to be magnified, there comes a point where I just can't extend my life any longer, you know, if, if, we're, if we're ill or whatever. God, I want you to be magnified and all that happens. So whether in living, whether in unfavorable circumstances or in death, living means Christ is going to change everything in how we live. The, the sweet song, old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, turn your eyes upon Bungie, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May we turn our eyes on him and him alone. Winston Churchill, tell me what's wrong with this quote in closing. It's not enough to have lived. We should be determined to have lived for 
something. Winston Churchill, Prime Minister in 1940 to 45 in England, we should have been determined to live for something. How would you change it? What do you say? For someone or for Christ. We should be determined to live for Christ. That changes everything. May that be our desire. May we get that out out of our message. Living means Christ. That when I walk out of here, I want to live as Christ lived. I want to love others. I'm sacrificial. I want to love God supremely. I want to go hard after others. Why God has me here. And understanding God is temporal. And you're eternal. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. God, may we not get over that grace this week. May we dwell on that goodness this week. God, may we bathe our minds and our hearts in the eternal and what we have in you. And may it start to change our earthly perspective, our temporal perspective to God where we crave you more than we do the temporal things of this earth. God, may this be a week of victorious living for us. May Christ be demonstrated in our lives Um, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our communication, in our care with one another. May people see Christ through us, and may you be honored, and may you be glorified. I pray in Christ's name, amen.